morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation, chapter 5. We are interrupting our series in 1 Peter, which interrupted our series in Mark because it's a year of interruptions. Um, We are doing that because um, we wanted to take a, a few weeks and address from various sections of Scripture some of the some of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. Uh, You may remember a number of weeks ago, I preached from Revelation chapter 20 and the throne room of God, and I said in that message that we need, particularly in difficult moments, in choppy waters, stormy seas, we need the, the light, the revelation of God's throne to guide us, to shape us as we navigate those waters. I think that is... That is very true for us as a church and as a a Christian community in this moment right now, particularly when you consider some of the ethnic tensions that are present, the cultural divisions that are present. I preached that message from Revelation 20 following the aftermath of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, and I believe we need to return to the scene of God's throne room, this time listening for the sound of heaven. I believe the sound of heaven needs to shape the sound of our hearts in this cultural moment. Uh, When I was first in ministry, I worked with the worship ministry of our family of churches, and I had the opportunity a few times uh, to be involved with recording at a music studio. And a a recording studio is is a remarkable place. It's, It's usually soundproofed, So that however loud the band or the vocalists are, if you are outside of that room, the sound is is non-existent or at best muffled. There's thick glass, there's sound all around it. But if you turn up the volume, if you open the door, well, suddenly that sound washes over you. Well, my concern is that our hearts tend to be muffled, muffled to the sound of heaven. And that sound, that that's, that glorious song is meant to be defining and resonating and reverberating around our heart all the time. Actually, we, we can't be faithful Christians, especially in a season of cultural chaos and division and animosity and antagonism, unless the song of heaven is reverberating in our hearts. Actually, our particular calling as Christians is to let the song of heaven through us ring out into a culture defined by a cacophony of anger and bitterness and division. So what I'd like to do this morning is walk through Revelation chapter 5. We're going to focus primarily on the song that is the climax of this chapter, but I want to walk through the whole chapter, uh, quickly walk through the story, and then I want to use some of the phrases of this song to to make some application to our particular cultural moments in this country right now. So let's read together Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one 
in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever, and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down, and worshiped. Lord, thank you for this song. Cause it to resonate in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to walk through this magnificent description, as I said, and then I want to see some moments when we get to that climactic song to apply it to our cultural moment today. This section begins at the throne room of God, which was introduced in Revelation in chapter 4. And we're told that the one seated on the throne, God himself, is holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. And in the imagery of Revelation, Revelation is theology by picture, this scroll will represent God's unfolding plan for human history, his intentions for judgment and blessing. It is, it is God's purpose, God's divine destiny for mankind contained in the imagery in a scroll that is sealed with seals. Now, these seals are significant because, as Dennis Johnson, the commentator, tells us, a sealed scroll could not be read until the seals were broken. But since the seal symbolizes its owner's authority, it could not legitimately be broken without his authorization. So when this angel comes and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? He is, in effect, asking, who has the credentials? Who has the right? Who deserves to approach God himself? And who has the audacity to claim God's own commission to bring about his purpose and plan for history? 
This is no less than accepting the agency of God himself to bring about God's plan for judgment and blessing on the earth. And the angel declares, who is worthy? And the search begins and extends throughout all of creation. And then John begins to weep because no one, no one is found and no wonder. Who could take this task? Who would dare to approach the throne of God and to take upon himself the task of bringing about God's purpose for humanity? Who would dare to take this task? And John is weeping because no one is found. He is weeping because no one is found worthy to bring an end to the sinful and cursed brokenness of this world. No one could end tyranny and enforce true justice. No one could end ethnic divisions and produce true peace. And don't we understand the reason for his weeping this year, perhaps more than most? Disease and death, division and injustice, lawlessness and greed, rebellion and immorality run side by side with self-righteous outrage, secularism and haughty self-assurance, gossip, slander, hatred, coveting are promoted as transparency. Good causes and evil causes are intentionally mixed together. The rejection of racism is intentionally coupled with the promotion of immoral sexuality. The fight for ethnic justice is married to the promotion of guilt by skin color. And if if there were no one worthy to break this cycle and bring about God's just and righteous conclusion of this world, it would indeed be a cause for weeping. No one is found in this first search. Now, let us, let us take this no one to heart. No one is found. That means in the most obvious application, that we are not worthy. Now, that might seem obvious when we're staring at this magnificent passage, but it's not as obvious in our daily lives. But we are not worthy. We were not found worthy. And there is a great deal of self-righteous outrage present today. I've said in a previous message that I think self-righteous outrage might be one caption of our entire generation. Self-righteous outrage is seen as convictional living in this world. Self-righteous assumption that we know what is best for the world, we know what is best for every ethnicity, we know what is best politically, we know what is best medically, we know what is best socially, but let's just be clear, you and I were not accidentally skipped over in this search. We are not worthy to take the destiny of humanity in our hands. And our perspective should not depict that we think we are. We're not worthy to bring about God's purpose for humanity, to defeat the effects of the curse of sin. We, we haven't even conquered our own hearts, let alone the sins of humanity. We are not worthy, and we are certainly called to do all the good we can and to love our neighbors the best that we can, but not in a, a kind of self-righteous confidence that if only everyone was like us, the world would be a perfect place. No, when we say no one is worthy, we include us, and our lifestyle should demonstrate that humility. We are not worthy 
It's not as though the only thing the world is lacking is my perspective. And if we act that way, we are missing the point of no one was found worthy. It also means that no human leader or social system is worthy. Our world is packed, packed with political, social, religious leaders and, and various social systems, some of which are better and some of which are worse. But all of them, all of them are temporary and imperfect at best. And there is no one person or no one system worthy to open the scroll and the seals of human destiny. Rome was not worthy. England was not worthy. America is not worthy. Capitalism is not worthy. Socialism is not worthy. Now, some systems in countries have been better and some have been worse in history, but they all have this in common. They were not worthy. They were not found worthy to take the scroll of human destiny and to be God's perfect agent for his plan. So John is weeping. But then John's weeping is interrupted. It's interrupted and ours should be interrupted as well. If self-righteous arrogance is one sin of our culture and perhaps of our hearts, another sin is hopeless despair. Hopeless despair, and the Bible interrupts the despair of hopeless weep, weep, weeping with the profound news that one has been found. One has been found. And if we found ourselves depressed by the, the divisions and the discouragements and the difficulties of this year, we need to be interrupted by this news. This, this news is meant to interrupt us. This kind elder who comes to John in his weeping comes also to us to interrupt us and to tell us, weep no more. Paul might put it, we may be sorrowful, but we should always be rejoicing. We may be lamenting the continued effects of sin, but we should be leaping because one has been found. Weep no more, he says. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In the language of Revelation, the lion means that Jesus is this mighty conqueror. He is the root of David, meaning he is the rightful heir of David's dynasty. And the promise is given to David to have a throne over God's people. And as John turns in the ongoing mixed metaphors of Revelation, now Jesus is not actually a lamb. There's clues here in how to understand this entire book. Jesus is not physically a lamb. He's not somehow some combination of root lamb lion. That's not what Jesus physically looks like. These are, these are images that say truth about Jesus. He turns and he sees a lamb. A lamb, a, a sacrificial victim. This mighty lion is a sacrificial lamb, and in fact, it looks as though it had been slain, perhaps blood stains on its woolen coat. It has seven horns depicting perfect power and seven eyes depicting perfect knowledge of all that goes on in creation. And he approaches the throne, and in a moment of unparalleled glory he takes the scroll and when he had taken the scroll the 24 elders fall down in worship before him and they begin to sing 
they begin to sing. Because singing is the only appropriate response that can combine truth and emotion. They begin to sing, to declare the worthiness of this one who is both conqueror and victim, who is all-powerful and yet meek, who is all-knowing and yet looks as though he had been slain. The worthy Savior begins to receive the song of his subjects. Now this worship song progresses, we might say it modulates, it begins with the 24 elders and they sing this marvelous new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So they are going to point out the chief reason for his worthiness in this song, the chief reason that he is able to take this task. Then the song modulates further and the angels numbering thousands upon thousands. We're meant to see this expanding choir from the 24 elders around the throne to the, the thousand myriad of heavenly hosts begin to sing, worthy as the Lamb was slain. And then we fast forward and the way Revelation works to the very end of history in verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. As Paul would say in that moment, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this modulating, graduating song just keeps expanding through time and reaches the final climactic chorus of all of creation. In every place in which they've been, resurrected and standing, whether by coercion or in love, declaring and confessing that Jesus Christ is worthy, that the Lamb deserves blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the song of heaven. This is the song of heaven. And if you are a Christian, this song is meant to be all the way up with the door wide open into your heart. This song is meant to be the sound, the, the soundtrack of your life. Uh, recently, I had one of the unusual opportunities of feeding my children a meal. And normally, it's much better that my, my wife does all of that because the food's better and it's on time and everything's much better. But, but on occasion, she gets a break and she happened to be out for something and I was feeding. Well, well, my son, I had the food all ready and it was all there delivered and he was ready to go. But then he told me, where is the music? I can't, and apparently he couldn't eat unless the music was on. Well, that's because every day my wife turns on music at that particular meal, and he is, like little Pavlov's dog, unable to eat without the music on. The soundtrack of his eating is this music that he's always used to hearing. Well, brothers and sisters, that should be the way it is for the Christian in the song of heaven. 
We should feel as if we can't go through the day unless the song of heaven is resounding in our hearts, unless the worthiness of the Lamb, the sovereignty of the Lamb, the power and might and wisdom of the Lamb, the death of the Lamb is resounding in our hearts. It should feel as though our hearts are muffled and the volume isn't up loud enough. And in a moment like this, where cultural divisions and anger and hatred are being shouted at us across the airwaves and across the aisles, we must remember that for the Christian, this song is meant to be louder than everything else. For the Christian, this song is meant to drown out every other sound. It doesn't mean we're disinterested. It means we're interested in the way that Christ is with every person who is around us. We're interested in a kind of heavenly song kind of way, with a kind of heavenly song assurance, with a kind of heavenly song attitude and perspective. Listen, if this song is not resounding in our hearts, this throne, then we will be, if I can use a musical term, off key. We will be off key. This this is the tuning of the Christian. If your heart is not tuned to this, it is off-key. Now, you've heard, I'm sure, an off-key instrument. It's, it's painful. It's not that they're not playing something like music. They're just not playing the music they're meant to be playing. A Christian normally does not go right from music to not music at all, they just go off key. They don't stop being a piano and turn into a lawnmower right away, but they do go off key. Let me ask us the question, are we on key with the sound of heaven? Well, the only way we could be on key is if the sound of heaven is blasting into our ears and into our hearts and shaping our view of the rest of the culture tuning us to understand the rest of the the christian listen the christian is the one with the right key now culture might accidentally hit a note here or there that sounds similar to heaven but the christian has the right key they have the right song they have the authoritative score of heaven and it should be resounding in our hearts let me give you four reasons why Christ is worthy in this song and how it should affect our current cultural moment with a particular look at some of the ethnic divisions and animosities that we are facing today. The topics that are resounding, and if you're on social media at all, this is what is on social media. If you're having conversations publicly at all, this is the topic. So I want to make sure that we are tuned in to the right key. Why is Christ worthy and why should that song affect or how should it affect our singing in this culture? Well, first of all, he is worthy because he ransomed sinners for God by his death. You see this marvelous verse, verse 9? Don't you love verse 9? I mean, verse 9 is a song for every morning and every night. 
Verse 9 is glorious. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why, elders? Why is he worthy? Of all of them, the many, many reasons that he is worthy as the divine son, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, why is he worthy? The reason he's worthy to take this scroll is not in the first place his eternal divinity, but his substitutionary sacrifice. Listen, God has always been God, but he has not always been man. God has always been infinite in power and knowledge, but there has not always been a God-man, and there definitely has not always been a man who could pay for sinners. So he is worthy, not not in this first reference only because of his divine power, which he has, but because his divine power was displayed in a human substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. That's what turned humanity's destiny into not just a moment of judgment, but also a moment of salvation. That's what was included in that scroll. And that's what the elders say is the reason he is worthy. Now, what does this mean for us right now? What is this song about his worthiness because he ransomed sinners for God by his death? What does it mean for us right now in this cultural moment? Well, it means that our greatest need, listen to this, this song has to tune your heart. Our greatest need is not social improvement or even ethnic reconciliation. Our greatest need is due to our sin against God's holiness and God's holy judgment against our sin. Now, those other needs are important, and we will get to those in a moment. But the first reason, the greatest need, the greatest and highest note of this song is not the problems that humans have with each other, but the problems we all have with God. And Christ took our sin and satisfied God's Holiness, the greatest, listen, the greatest problem of justice in this world. Listen, the greatest, the most profound, the deepest, the most unsolvable problem of justice in this world is not injustices from one person to another, but the unpunished sins of people against God. Because God is more valuable than all people put together. Let me urge you, in thinking about social justice, the justice of society toward each member or from one member to another, make sure, make sure you keep in mind that our greatest problem of justice had to do with God and Christ died unjustly in our place. Surely sin against people is important. It's one of the ways we sin against God by sinning against his image bearers. It's one of the ways we defame God is by defacing his image bearers. But our greatest need and our most important desire and greatest triumphant song should be reserved for the death of Christ. Where we we were ransomed out of slavery to guilt and sin and condemnation and into fellowship with our maker. The highest note in our hearts should always be reserved for the ransom of Christ's death. 
That's how you know you are in tune with heaven. When the highest note of your passion, the highest note of your heart, and the theme you never drift away from is the ransom of Christ for sinners. If other notes, important as they are, crowd out that note, you are out of tune with heaven. Worthy are you, the elders say, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Second application of this song and how it can shape our hearts. He's worthy because he ransomed sinners for God by his death. And secondly, he is worthy because his victory came through self-sacrifice. Jesus did not conquer through power, but through weakness. He did not conquer through arrogance and violence toward others, but through self-sacrifice and servanthood. The Savior whose song is resounding in heaven is the Lion of Judah because he gave himself as a lamb. It is not incidental that the lion is the lamb. It is essential that the lion is the lamb. The lion could not be the lion if he was not the lamb. Life through death, greatness through humility, exaltation through servanthood is the wisdom of heaven and it must define our view of wisdom on earth. Now listen, it is not, listen to this, because this is different than what is prevalent in the thinking today. It is not that power is inherently evil. Jesus, Jesus is declared worthy to receive power. Power is not inherently evil. And the idea that power is inherently evil is ultimately going to be a problem when people face the all-powerful God who is all good. Power is not inherently evil. Jesus is worshipped for having power. And the strength of his salvation and sovereignty is glorified by his people. Power, wealth, influence, might are not inherently evil. But they are not to be pursued or grasped for themselves, but rather to be used and sacrificed for the good of others. The wisdom of Christ must shape the wisdom of his people. The Bible does not even call Christians to ensure that every human has an equal amount of social power or resources or influence, but, but it does call us to follow the way of the Savior and lay down our rights, power, and influence for the good of others in the wisdom of the cross. The lion laid down his life, and that was his road to glory, and it is the road of his people as well. Today, the burgeoning social movements talk a lot about the importance of balancing power the importance of equity in social opportunity and economic outcomes. Now, some of those things should warrant our compassion and our eagerness to do all that we can, like the Good Samaritan, for those who are in need, whether structurally in the country or personally in our lives. However, however, underneath much of the cultural thinking is the idea that human power is the means and the measure of dignity and worth and value. But the worthiness of Christ did not come in grasping 
but in relinquishing the use of power. It did not come through social elevation, but in humiliation. The wisdom of the cross makes little sense in a day of self-promotion, but it must be the wisdom that marks the Christian. If the song of heaven is resounding in our hearts, we will be looking for ways to use whatever power we have in self-sacrifice for the lasting good of others as a humble reflection of our self-sacrificing Lord. Don't be deceived. Just because there is some elements of good in a social movement does not mean its foundations and all of its teachings resound with the sound of heaven. Mercy is good. The abuse of power is bad. But power is not inherently evil. And power should be used primarily to serve others. Why do we think that? Because it seems nice and kind to say that? No. There's a lot of things in the Bible that do not seem nice to our culture. We're going to get to them in First Peter. Just keep reading First Peter. You're going to get to some not culturally nice passages very quickly. You can pray for me because I was just telling the guys this week, I need help preaching this one. Just keep reading. There's, there's plenty of not nice. It's not like the Bible is this nice book, nice collection. Isn't this great? The nice Bible. That we, no, there's plenty of the Bible that is not nice. We don't say this because it's nice to talk about humility. We say it because it's true. We say it because Christ, the one with ultimate power, relinquished his use of power to lift up the weak and only received the restoration of his power because, because he was obedient to his father and he crushed the curse of death by dying. His Worthiness, the Song of Heaven says, came through self-sacrifice. Very different view of power than is prevalent today. Be discerning. Be discerning. If you discern an emphasis on power, take that song to the Song of Heaven and let it be retuned. Third application. He is worthy because his death creates a unified global people. His death creates a unified global people. Do you notice this marvelous phrase? You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe and language and people and nation. The angels declare that the blood of Christ has created a people not just of one ethnicity, not just of one nation, not just of one family, but of every tribe and language and people and nation. To use the language of the Old Testament, it is not enough in the view of the Father for Christ to be glorified for saving one ethnicity only. He was worthy of receiving praise from every ethnicity on earth. It was not enough that there should be a selective representation of humanity from a few tribes, a few nations. No, he had to be receiving the praise of a collection of representatives from every ethnicity, from every tribe, from every nation. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in him, in his offspring, all the families of earth would be blessed. The gospel of Christ, listen to this, Listen, the gospel of Christ is God's plan to end every ethnic division and to unite representatives of every tribe and nation through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
If you want to know what God thinks will permanently and perfectly end ethnic division, it is the blood of Christ. You know what God's plan is for removing the antagonism, the hatred towards God that resulted in the hatred of one another? It is the blood of Christ. Now, are other things good? And can we find common cause even with non-believers in doing practical good things in our politics and society? Of course, of course we should as good neighbors. Yes, we should, but... But we must never pursue those things as if God needs our suggestion for a better ultimate plan for uniting every ethnicity. Because every ethnicity finally will only be united in the blood of Christ and no other way. There is only one worthy unifier of humanity and it is Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, Christians, Christians, here's what we have. We have the truth that is God's plan to unite every ethnicity. We have it. Now, should we care about other plans? Sure, but not in such a way that we neglect talking about the plan. Not in such a way we neglect talking about the blood that unites every person in this human race. Every ethnicity comes together in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have a unique task. Are we citizens? Yes. Should we care about social ideas? Sure, we should. But, but we have the unifier. We have God's plan. We, we have a unifier that exceeds every other type of unity. Uh, national interest, is it good? Uh, even, even the understanding that all people are made in the image of God and deserve dignity and respect from all of their fellow image bearers, very, very good. But that image is broken and marred by sin, and so someone has to restore it. And the only person who can restore it is someone who can die for the sins that separate us from each other and can bring us together because we are united to Him. And in drawing near to Christ, we draw near to every other kind of person. Look, in heaven, there's going to be people from every ethnicity. And they're gonna be standing there arm in arm worshiping the worthy lamb because the same blood paid for them all. And that atonement is a more fundamental identity and unity than anything else. They may have different skin colors, but the blood that bought them is the same. They may have different parentage, but the blood that bought them is the same. They may have different musical preferences, but the blood that bought them is the same. They may come from England or Zimbabwe or China or Arizona or Alaska or any place around the world, but the blood that bought them is the same. You know what the badge that happens? When you come into heaven, you know what the badge is? Like when you go to a conference and you have a badge, from this place, from this location. You know what the badge says? Blood-bought Christian. And that badge is the same badge that everybody wears. John Piper, in his excellent book, which I would recommend to you, if you want a book, a single book to read on this topic, I would recommend his book, Bloodlines. He says this, it was the explicit aim of Jesus in his earthly ministry to save and gather a people of God, not defined by any one race or ethnicity, 
or any political banner, but rather defined decisively by faith in himself as the only Savior, absolute Lord, and supreme treasure. Thus, his mission was, among other glorious things, the end of ethnocentrism. Now, this, this means that we as the church have a source of ethnic and global unity that is far greater than any social movement can offer. We have the person of Jesus Christ, God's chosen head of humanity and the one blood that unites people from every tribe and nation. This means that we should see ethnic distinctions and cultural distinctions not as something to be ignored, but as something to be unified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There should be, there should be in our heart a holy jealousy to see in our lives and in the church a multicultural unity. Notice there is not the, the elimination of all cultural diversity. There is the celebration of multicultural unity in the person and work of Christ. And we should long to see that in the body of Christ as well. Here, where the song of the Lamb is sung, the tribes of the earth should sing in harmony. This means also... We should not be indifferent to the suffering of brothers and sisters in Christ who are of a different ethnicity. The right view, if I could, listen to this, the right view of colorblindness, you know that concept, colorblindness? I see a human, I don't see their color. The right view of colorblindness is that we do not assume some man-made artificial separation based on skin color. But... The wrong view of colorblindness is if it makes us selfishly indifferent to the unique sufferings of fellow Christians in this broken world. In this country, we do need to know that black brothers in Christ are often scrutinized by society in ways that they do not deserve. They have to train their children to be prepared for scrutiny that they do not deserve. They often face economic challenges due to our national history of overt racism that have nothing to do with their work ethic. And this should provoke our compassion and mercy. We trust God's good purposes even in overruling the evils of our age and our nation. But it should provoke our compassion and mercy and sacrificial love. We should have this toward any image bearer, but especially towards those who are united to us in Christ Jesus. It celebrates this song when we care deeply about every kind of ethnicity that will be included in this song. Finally, final reason, he is worthy. He is worthy. Because all creation will finally submit to him. All creation will finally submit to him. Read 13 again. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Remember those locations that are referenced again in Revelation 20? When they come before the throne the books that evaluate their deeds in the one book of life, there's going to be a confession on that day. Some will confess it by force and some in loving adoration. But they will all say, to him who sits on the throne, 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This has every creature in all of creation declaring the worthiness of the Lamb. This confession anticipates the final moment when Christ has been revealed, has exercised dominion over his enemies, has placed them under his feet, and has received the confession of lordship from every tongue. This is the sound our hearts should be tuned towards. This is the reality in, in the midst of a, a culture where radical subjectivism is elevated as truth. There is a truth, <laughs> regardless of how one feels about it, that every human being will face. There is a sound that every human being will hear coming out of their own lips. It is the sound of the worship and adoration and glory of Jesus Christ. This is the certain destiny of every soul, to declare the worthiness of Jesus. And some will adore him, and some will grind their teeth as they say it, but they will say it. The angel asks, is there anyone worthy? And may the church answer, yes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb has conquered, and he is worthy, and he has taken the scroll, and he is overseeing all of history, and he is overruling all events for his glory and the perfection of his church. Even this year of 2020, with all of its difficulty and disease and division, the lamb is overruling it all, and his glory will be established, and unrevocably he will be seen to be the glorious one. Is he worthy? And let the song of the church say, yes! He is. Yes, he is. Yes, he is worthy. Yes, he is worthy. And he is the only one who is worthy. Let the sound of heaven, my dear brothers and sisters, in this year, let the sound of heaven reverberate through your heart. Let the song of the Lamb shape your speech. Let it shape your hope. Let it shape your faith. Let it shape your joy. Let it shape your discernment. Let it shape your interactions. Let the song of the Lamb resound through your hearts. Your heart is a hallway from heaven. Let the sound of heaven bounce through you to the culture around you. Let your life resound with the sound of the Lamb. Is there anyone worthy? Yes, he is. Let's pray. Invite the band to join me. You are worthy. Jesus Christ, lion and lamb, heir of David, glorious son of God, crucified, risen, and ascended. You are worthy. All things are in your capable and all-powerful hands. You are worthy. Lord, Lord, our song is weak because our bodies are weak and we are limited, but Lord, we are listening to the mighty song of heaven, and we are joining our voices with that song. Lord, let this song reverberate through this week reverberate through every tempting moment, every discouraging moment, every moment where divisions can turn to unity. Let this song resound through your people and from them into this culture. 
Let the sound of the Lamb be heard. You are worthy. Receive our worship. Receive our exaltation. In Jesus' name.